chapter forty one part two of supplements to the fourth book from the world as well and idea volume three by arthur schopenhauer translated by r b haldane and j kemp this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by expatriate in bangor maine chapter forty one on death and its relation to the indestructibility of our true nature part two i have here also to remark that the maintenance of the life process although it has a metaphysical basis does not go on without resistance and consequently not without effort it is this to which the organism yields every night on account of which it then suspends the brain function and diminishes certain secretions the respiration the pulse and the development of heat from this we may conclude that the entire ceasing of the life process must be a wonderful relief to its motive force perhaps this has some share in the expression of sweet contentment on the face of most dead persons in general the moment of death may be like the moment of awaking from a heavy dream that has oppressed us like a nightmare up to this point the result we have arrived at is that death however much it may be feared can yet really be no evil but often it even appears as a good thing as something wished for as a friend all that have met with insuperable obstacles to their existence or their efforts that suffer from incurable diseases or inconsolable griefs have as a last refuge which generally opens to them of its own accord the return into the womb of nature from which they arose for a short time enticed by the hope of more favourable conditions of existence than have fallen to their lot and the same path out of which constantly remains open that return is the cassio bonorum of life yet even here it is only entered upon after a physical and moral conflict so hard does one struggle against returning to the place from which one came out so lightly and readily to an existence which has so much suffering and so little pleasure to offer the hindus give the god of death yama two faces one very fearful and terrible and one very cheerful and benevolent this partly explains itself from the reflections we have just made at the empirical point of view at which we still stand the following consideration is one which presents itself of its own accord and therefore deserves to be accurately defined by illustration and thereby referred to its proper limits the sight of a dead body shows me that sensibility irritability circulation of the blood reproduction etc have here ceased i conclude from this with certainty that what actuated these hitherto which was yet always something unknown to me now actuates them no longer thus has departed from them but if i should now wish to add that this must have been just what i have known only as consciousness consequently as intelligence soul this would be not only an unjustified but clearly a false conclusion for consciousness has always showed itself to me not as the cause but as the product and result of the organized life for it rose and sank in consequence of this in the different periods of life in health and sickness in sleep in a swoon in a waking etc thus always appeared as effect never as cause of the organized life always showed itself as something which arises and passes away and again arises 
so long as the conditions of this still exist but not apart from them nay i may also have seen that the complete derangement of consciousness madness far from dragging down with it and depressing the other forces or indeed endangering life heightens these very much especially irritability or muscular force and rather lengthens than shortens life if other causes do not come in then also i knew individuality as a quality of everything organized and therefore if this is a self-conscious organism also of consciousness but there exists no occasion now to conclude that individuality was inherent in that vanished principle which imparts life and is completely unknown to me all the less so as i see that everywhere in nature each particular phenomenon is the work of a general force which is active in thousands of similar phenomena but on the other hand there is just as little occasion to conclude that because the organized life has ceased here that force which hitherto actuated it has also become nothing as little as to infer the death of the spinner from the stopping of the spinning wheel if a pendulum by finding its centre of gravity at last comes to rest and thus its individual apparent life has ceased no one will imagine that gravitation is now annihilated but every one comprehends that after as before it is active in innumerable phenomena certainly it might be urged against this comparison that here also in this pendulum gravitation has not ceased to be active but only to manifest its activity palpably whoever insists on this may think instead of an electrical body in which after its discharge electricity has actually ceased to be active i only wish to show in this that we ourselves recognize in the lowest forces of nature an eternity and ubiquity with regard to which the transitory nature of their fleeting phenomena never makes us err for a moment so much the less then should it come into our mind to regard the ceasing of life as the annihilation of the living principle and consequently death as the entire destruction of the man because the strong arm which three thousand years ago bent the bow of ulysses is no more no reflective and well-regulated understanding will regard the force which acted so energetically in it as entirely annihilated and therefore upon further reflection will also not assume that the force which bends the bow to-day first began with this arm the thought lies far nearer us that the force which earlier actuated the life which now has vanished is the same which is active in the life which now flourishes nay this is almost inevitable certainly however we know that as was explained in the second book only that is perishable which is involved in the causal series but only the states and forms are so involved on the other hand untouched by the change of these which is introduced by causes there remain on the one side matter and on the other side natural forces for both are the presupposition of all these changes but the principle of our life we must primarily at least conceive as a force of nature until perhaps a more profound investigation has brought us to know what it is in itself thus taken simply as a force of nature the vital force remains entirely undisturbed by the change of forms and states which the bond of cause and effect introduces and carries off again and which alone are subject to the process of coming into being and passing away 
as it lies before us in experience thus so far the imperishable nature of our true being can be proved with certainty but it is true this will not satisfy the claims which are wont to be made upon proofs of our continued existence after death nor ensure the consolation which is expected from such proofs however it is always something and whoever fears death as an absolute annihilation cannot afford to despise the perfect certainty that the inmost principle of his life remains untouched by it nay the paradox might be set up that that second thing also which just like the forces of nature remains untouched by the continual change under the guidance of causality thus matter by its absolute permanence ensures us indestructibility by virtue of which whoever was incapable of comprehending any other might yet confidently trust in a certain imperishableness what it will be said the permanence of the mere dust of the crude matter is to be regarded as a continuance of our being oh do you know this dust then do you know what it is and what it can do learn to know it before you despise it this matter which now lies there as dust and ashes will soon dissolved in water form itself as a crystal will shine as metal will then emit electric sparks will by means of its galvanic intensity manifest a force which decomposing the closest combinations reduces earths to metals nay it will of its own accord form itself into plants and animals and from its mysterious womb develop that life for the loss of which you in your narrowness are so painfully anxious is it then absolutely nothing to continue to exist as such matter nay i seriously assert that even this permanence of matter affords evidence of the indestructibility of our true nature though only as in an image or simile or rather only as an outline to see this we only need to call to mind the explanation of matter given in chapter twenty four from which it resulted that mere formless matter this basis of the world of experience which is never perceived for itself alone but assumed as constantly remaining is the immediate reflection the visibility in general of the thing in itself thus of the will therefore whatever absolutely pertains to the will as such holds good also of matter and it reflects the true eternal nature of the will under the image of temporal imperishableness because as has been said nature does not lie no view which has sprung from a purely objective comprehension of it and been logically thought out can be absolutely false but at the most only very one-sided and imperfect such however is indisputably consistent materialism for instance that of epicurus just as well as the absolute idealism opposed to it like that of berkeley and in general every philosophical point of view which has proceeded from a correct aperçu and been honestly carried out only they are all exceedingly one-sided comprehensions and therefore in spite of their opposition they are all true each from a different point of view but as soon as one has risen above this point of view then they only appear as relatively and conditionally true the highest standpoint alone from which one surveys them all and knows them in their relative truth but also beyond this in their falseness can be that of absolute truth so far as this is in general attainable accordingly we see as was shown above 
that in the very crude and therefore very old point of view of materialism proper the indestructibility of our true nature in itself is represented as by a mere shadow of it the imperishableness of matter as in the already higher naturalism of an absolute physics it is represented by the ubiquity and eternity of the natural forces among which the vital force is at least to be counted thus even these crude points of view contain the assertion that the living being suffers no absolute annihilation through death but continues to exist in and with the whole of nature the considerations which have brought us to this point and to which the further explanations link themselves on started from the remarkable fear of death which fills all living beings but now we will change the standpoint and consider how in contrast to the individual beings the whole of nature bears itself with reference to death in doing this however we still always remain upon the ground of experience certainly we know no higher game of chance than that for death and life every decision about this we watch with the utmost excitement interest and fear for in our eyes all in all is at stake on the other hand nature which never lies but is always straightforward and open speaks quite differently upon this theme speaks like krishna in the bhagavad-gita what it says is this the death or the life of the individual is of no significance it expresses this by the fact that it exposes the life of every brute and even of man to the most insignificant accidents without coming to the rescue consider the insect on your path a slight unconscious turning of your step is decisive as to its life or death look at the wood snail without any means of flight of defence of deception of concealment a ready prey for all look at the fish carelessly playing in the still open net the frog restrained by its laziness from the flight which might save it the bird that does not know of the falcon that soars above it the sheep which the wolf eyes and examines from the thicket all these provided with little foresight go about guilelessly among the dangers that threaten their existence every moment since now nature exposes its organisms constructed with such inimitable skill not only to the predatory instincts of the stronger but also to the blindest chance to the humour of every fool the mischievousness of every child without reserve it declares that the annihilation of these individuals is indifferent to it does it no harm has no significance and that in these cases the effect is of no more importance than the cause it says this very distinctly and does not lie only it makes no comments on its utterances but rather expresses them in the laconic style of an oracle if now the all-mother sends forth her children without protection to a thousand threatening dangers this can only be because she knows that if they fall they fall back into her womb where they are safe therefore their fall is a mere jest nature does not act otherwise with man than with the brutes therefore its declaration extends also to man the life and death of the individual are indifferent to it accordingly in a certain sense they ought also to be indifferent to us for we ourselves are indeed nature certainly if only we saw deep enough we would agree with nature and regard life and death as indifferently as it does meanwhile by means of reflection we must attribute that carelessness and indifference of nature towards the life of the individuals 
to the fact that the destruction of such a phenomenon does not in the least affect its true and proper nature if we further ponder the fact that not only as we have just seen are life and death dependent upon the most trifling accidents but that the existence of the organized being in general is an ephemeral one that animal and plant arise to-day and pass away to-morrow and birth and death follow in quick succession while to the unorganized things which stand so much lower an incomparably longer duration is assured and an infinite duration to the absolutely formless matter alone to which indeed we attribute this a priori then i think the thought must follow of its own accord even from the purely empirical but objective and unprejudiced comprehension of such an order of things that this is only a superficial phenomenon that such a constant arising and passing away can by no means touch the root of things but can only be relative nay only apparent in which the true inner nature of that thing is not included the nature of which everywhere evades our glance and is thoroughly mysterious but rather that this continues to exist undisturbed by it although we can neither apprehend nor conceive the manner in which this happens and must therefore think of it only generally as a kind of tour de passe-passe which took place there for that while what is most imperfect the lowest the unorganized continues to exist unassailed it is just the most perfect beings the living creatures with their infinitely complicated and inconceivably ingenious organizations which constantly arise new from the very foundation and after a brief span of time absolutely pass into nothingness to make room for other new ones like them coming into existence out of nothing this is something so obviously absurd that it can never be the true order of things but rather a mere veil which conceals this or more accurately a phenomenon conditioned by the nature of our intellect nay the whole being and not being itself of these individuals in relation to which death and life are opposites can only be relative thus the language of nature in which it is given us as absolute cannot be the true and ultimate expression of the nature of things and of the order of the world but only as a patois du pie that is something merely relatively true something to be understood cum grano salis or to speak properly something conditioned by our intellect i say an immediate intuitive conviction of the kind which i have tried to describe in words will press itself upon every one that is certainly only upon every one whose mind is not of an utterly ordinary species which is absolutely only capable of knowing the particular simply and solely as such which is strictly limited to the knowledge of individuals after the manner of the intellect of the brutes whoever on the other hand by means of a capacity of an only somewhat higher power even just begins to see in the individual beings their universal their ideas will also to a certain extent participate in that conviction and that indeed as an immediate and therefore certain conviction in fact it is also only small limited minds that fear death quite seriously as their annihilation and persons of decidedly superior capacity are completely free from such terrors plato rightly bases the whole of philosophy upon the knowledge of the doctrine of ideas that is upon the perception of the universal in the particular 
but the conviction here described which proceeds directly from the comprehension of nature must have been exceedingly vivid in those sublime authors of the upanishads of the vedas who can scarcely be thought of as mere men for it speaks to us so forcibly out of an innumerable number of their utterances that we must ascribe this immediate illumination of their mind to the fact that these wise men standing nearer the origin of our race in time comprehended the nature of things more clearly and profoundly than the already deteriorated race oionun bratoi esin is able to do but certainly their comprehension is assisted by the natural world of india which is endowed with life in a very different degree from our northern world however thorough reflection as pursued by kant's great mind leads by another path to the same result for it teaches us that our intellect in which that phenomenal world which changes so fast exhibits itself does not comprehend the true ultimate nature of things but merely its phenomenal manifestations and indeed as i add because it is originally only destined to present the motives to our will that is to be serviceable to it in the pursuit of its paltry end end of chapter forty one section two recording by expatriate in bangor maine